and I'm glad to be with you. I'm excited and sad to announce that we have reached the end of our Galatians series called No Other Gospel. And we actually began back on May 9th. That was the launch of it, and we've been trucking right along. We've logged, this would be the 22nd and final sermon, and uh, I always like statistics, and I always like to kind of look back and, and see what the Lord did, and uh, He caused me and worked through me to write 70,000 words in this series. And uh, I was like, you know, before I was saved, I didn't even read I could read, but I, I just didn't read anything. And that was before cell phones, so I couldn't have read Sports Center stuff and all that. But, you know, and just to, to, to be saved, you know, almost 20 years ago and to become a reader and, a, and someone who writes it's just, and preaches, it's just amazing, the Lord's grace. But, um, yeah, just about set, just a little under 70,000 words. And what I'm saying is, is that I'm long-winded. You know this. So, but the Lord is good. And last Sunday we looked at Paul's second warning toward the end of chapter 6, toward the end of the book. He, he issues three warnings at the very end, and we looked at the second one. And uh, the Judaizers, who were the false teachers that were infiltrating these churches and, and leading these Galatian brothers and sisters in the Lord to sort of embrace a false gospel of works righteousness and stuff, they... They claimed the whole time that they were going out to these churches and entering these churches, they claimed to be the real deal, like we are the real leadership of the church. Pay no mind to the apostles in Jerusalem or, or to Paul. We are the real leadership, and, and what we say is authoritative, and what we say is legitimate, and we are the people that know the Scripture. And this was kind of their argument. And unfortunately, they had led quite a few Galatians astray. And, uh, but when Paul peeled back the thin veil of their piety and exposed their true self, and he's really done this through the whole letter, but in particular toward the end of Galatians 6 here at the end of the book, when he began to do that, we have discovered that they were only hypocritical pretenders. Uh, they were driven by many wrong motives. They didn't have a sincere love for God or a sincere love for God's law or a sincere law for other believers. None of that was true. Paul has exposed that, especially last week. We learned that they had um, false motives. They had a desire for admiration above anything else. They wanted to be admired. They had a desire to avoid persecution. And the way they did that was by adding works of the law to the gospel, because when you do that, that kind of takes the fangs out of the gospel. The gospel is like, look, it's God's work alone. And when you start saying, well, man participates or plays a role in that, nobody's upset with you because everyone thinks they can earn their way into heaven. And so they, they, would, you know, they added works of the law like circumcision to the gospel. You know, you've got to be circumcised and believe, and this helped them to avoid persecution, especially among Jews. Uh, they had a desire to make others submit to the Mosaic laws, to the laws of God's circumcision and these things, while they had zero intention of keeping any of this stuff. They just wanted to bind up others with rules but they didn't want to follow the rules that they preached. So they had a wrong motive there. And then lastly, one of their false motives was they had a desire for bragging rights among fellow Jews in the Galatian communities. And every time they got some Gentile who's a non-Jew, 
a Gentile Christian to go along with their game and to get circumcised, that would earn them bragging rights in the Jewish community because Jews back then were very hung up on the Mosaic law and the circumcision and all those ordinances just as they are today. And so they wanted bragging rights. Look at how many circumcisions we were able to get in these Galatian churches. I know it's a really weird thing to boast about, but it was a serious thing that they dealt with in the first century. And, uh, and, and the Jews are very serious about it today, by the way. So we've, we learned that they just didn't have right motives. They weren't the real deal at all. And, uh, and Paul has just been putting the hammer on them. He has been putting the hammer on them. And rightfully so, you're supposed to expose false teachers. Now in the last, the very last, I should say, section of this epistle to the Galatians, Paul issues his third and final warning. And he tells his readers, the Galatians and anyone literally who reads this, he tells us and everyone else that there is literally only one thing that Christians should boast about. One thing. Because remember, the Judaizers were boasting about circumcisions and all the people they were gathering into their little cult and all this. They were boasting about their theology, boasting about their religion and all these things, boasting about their church size, so to speak, and all the stuff that we even hear people boasting about today, the attendance and conversions and all that. They were doing that. And Paul literally fires both barrels of the double-barrel shotgun here and, and literally lays out for Christians. There, there's only, you, you, you're not to boast about anything other than this one thing. There's only one thing in all creation that's boastworthy. And, and it has literally nothing to do with the number of religious converts we allegedly gain, the, the number of baptisms we perform, the, the number of people who attend our worship gatherings, or anything personal like our biblical acumen, you know, our knowledge, our theology, our education, our intelligence, our income, accomplishments, possessions, and so on. There's one thing that the Christian can and should boast about. And all other such boasting is, is ridiculous and sinful. And this is what he presents in his very final piece here in Galatians. And it makes sense to close the letter with this. It does. So if you'd be kind enough to take your Bibles and turn to Galatians, we're going to look at what Bruce just read a moment ago. Our passage will be the very end, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. This will be a three-point sermon with no matching letters. I don't know why that gets under my wife's skin. Why do you have to have L's? Why do you have to have P's? You know, well, I have to have P's because my name's Phil. But no matching letters today, no matching luggage. Well, let's go ahead and go to where we were and where we left off last week. We're going to pick it up at verse 14a. We have to deal with this verse before we get into our points. And, and this is what Paul says next. He says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Let's pray and close the sermon. That's literally the only thing that the Christian should boast about. And, and, and literally in context here, after exposing the Judaizers' wrong motives, right, and, and exposing their 
strange and bizarre and even kind of perverted, not in a sexual way, but just a perversion of true religion, their perverted desire to have non-Jewish Gentile Christians circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses, you know, so that they could brag about it in their flesh. After exposing all of that, Paul absolutely decimates all such boasting by describing the only thing in the world that's boastworthy. The only thing, and that is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in the cross is fine. And, and Paul says this not because he had nothing else to boast about. We need to understand who we're dealing with here. We're talking about the Apostle Paul, the artist formerly known as Saul. He had plenty to boast about, plenty to boast about. In fact, he says this to the Philippians he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If there's anybody out there that, 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 that has the ability to take pride and confidence in their flesh, I'm telling you I have more than everyone else. Combine them all together, I have more confidence and more reason to boast about it. That's what he says. And then he gives kind of his credentials. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, which is kind of like the glorified tribe. I, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law of God, which is what the Judaizers were fixed on, I was a Pharisee, that's a religious leader, and as to zeal for Judaism, he was a persecutor of the church. Remember, he had Stephen put to death, and then he says, as to righteousness in accordance with the law of Moses, I was blameless. These are the things that Paul could have easily boasted about. These are his credentials, and they are listed in Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6. After stating this, we, we find that Paul was a man of, of serious accomplishment, serious accomplishment. He, he was even trained by the greatest Jewish rabbi of his day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. We see this in Acts 22, verse 3. And not only was he uh, all of the things that he's listed and trained under Gamaliel, he was also a member of the Jewish Supreme Court of his day, and that is called the Sanhedrin, or was called the Sanhedrin. To, to be a member of the Supreme Court, we know what it's like to get members onto that court, and that is not an easy thing. And it, was no, it was, wasn't any easier in the first century to get onto this. There was like, I think, 70 of them total, and and usually it was passed from one family member to another. And we see that today in, in some circles, not necessarily on the Supreme Court, but in other ways. And he happened to be a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Israel, the Supreme Court of Israel. And I just he was basically, and if we think of the Judaizers who were the false teachers, if we were to make a comparison between them and Paul, there was no Credentially speaking and positionally, there was no comparison between the Judaizers, those false teachers who claimed to be it, and Paul. Paul was superior to them in every conceivable way, literally. In terms of Jewish status, there, there was nobody uh, that, that we're even reading about here that, that was at his level. The Judaizers were, were just a bunch of shemps compared to this guy. And so he, he had plenty to boast about. I, he, could have, he, he could have boasted about any of these things and put anyone else in the room to shame easily. He was superior in every way, but he also said this 
to the Philippians. In fact, he says this after he goes through his credentials. He says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 3, 7-8a. So he had these incredible credentials and lists them. Look, if you guys want to have a comparison, I'm at the top here. But let me tell you something. If we take everything that I was and everything that I, that I was at that time and all of my accomplishments and everything and combine it all, I consider all of it together to be nothing but rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. This was his true heart of hearts. This was his saved heart speaking. This is not the heart of the flesh. The heart of the flesh boasts in the stuff. But the new man, the new creation boasts in the cross and in what Christ has done. When a sinner is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, whatever they gained up to that moment and whatever they gain after that moment will begin to seem unimportant when compared with knowing Christ. One of the signs of true conversion and salvation is just everything else loses its luster and shine and value. And the thing that becomes the object of your obsession is the cross and it's the work of Christ. He becomes your treasure. This, this really begins right at the moment of conversion and kind of intensifies over the years. Now, I get it. There's seasons where it's kind of up and down, and you know I get that. But for the most part, I remember when I got saved, and I, I, I didn't have credentials like Paul, but it was easy for me to say that anything and everything that I've acquired up to this point is garbage, rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Now, I feel less like that today because I think that I, and we've all done this, we allow pride to creep in and to manifest. But the heart of the true Christian is that it's not that other people aren't important to us. It's not that our children aren't important to us. It's not that our jobs are unimportant or, or anything. These things are important, our accomplishments and things. We've worked hard for things. It's not that you know we just cast all those things aside, but... But when you come to know Christ, he becomes the most important person in your life. And the cross becomes the object of your obsession. It's a good thing. It's a right thing. It's a holy thing to do this. You know, you, you get to where now when you see a cross, you think of what Christ did for you there. And you cherish the cross and what he did there for you. And Paul, this is what Paul was teaching the Philippians, and it's exactly what he's teaching the Galatians here, just with a lot less detail. You know, he's saying, heaven forbid that I would boast in any sort of religious activity or in something as useless as circumcision like the Judaizers. There's one thing that I'm going to boast in. I've got stuff to boast about, but I don't care about those things. I'm boasting about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all that's worth boasting about. That's what he's saying. He's teaching the Galatians the exact same lesson. The Judaizers were boasting about circumcisions. What a strange thing to boast about. You know, when it's an integral part of your religion, I guess it's boastworthy, right? Because that's what we're talking about here. But it's something that they boasted about. 
Whenever they could get some Gentile Christian to go along with them, they would boast about, well, you know, we had, uh, you know, I, I know the, the synagogue or the church down the street, they had eight conversions. We had 12 circumcisions. Huh? And we talked about this last week. It, it's just such a weird thing to boast about, especially when we compare it to the cross. Now, keep in mind that the Judaizers were claiming to be Christians. So these are Christians that are boasting, allegedly Christians that are boasting in something other than the cross and in something that makes absolutely no sense to us, circumcision. Just a, a weird, strange religious dynamic here. Just doesn't make any sense. And it's what they were doing. And I'll tell you what, boasting about circumcision the way that they did it reveals something very serious and important and profound about these men, that they were, in fact, unregenerate, that they were unconverted, right? Because the, the centerpiece of their religion was not the cross. That is the centerpiece of our religion. And the centerpiece of their religion, which they claimed was Christianity, was circumcision. Circumcision is the centerpiece of a religion, but it's not Christianity. It's Judaism. It's symbolic of you belonging to the covenant people and to the nation of Israel, and it has massive significance. So the fact that they were obsessed with circumcision reveals their true religion. And we know, without a doubt, it wasn't Christianity. It was Judaism. These men had never made the jump, never made the leap. The Spirit had never converted them. They were posers. They were fakes. They were hypocrites. And I tell you what, whatever it is that we obsess about and boast about, that says a lot about us. It does. If all we do is boast about our kids, that says a lot about us. If all we do is boast about our possessions, that says a lot about us. If all we do is boast about our income or our stock portfolio, that says a lot about us. If all we do is boast about our floral Hawaiian shirts, it says a lot about us. Gun collection, you know, Bible collection, Bible knowledge, theology. It says a lot about us. It reveals much. You know, what we boast about reveals what's actually in our heart. And if we're boasting about the cross, and that's the one thing that we, we do boast about, then that shows where our heart is. We need to understand that circumcision here is it's a tenant of a powerless, dead religion, Judaism. Don't, don't think that, that, you know, well, the Jews, the religious, pious Jews, they're like us. No, they're worse than non-religious Jews because they are still affirming and believing and following a dead, powerless religion that does not lead to Christ. It's, Judaism is as much a false religion as Islam. Judaism is not advantageous. I think that Satan uses it to keep people and to blind people from seeing Christ, which is the, the resolving of Judaism in the law. It ends with Christ. It's an old dead tenet. It has zero power, zero relevance. You know, it's as... It's as useless as some of the other Old Testament tenets, and I'm not at all attacking God's Word and saying the Old Testament is, is useless, but I'm telling you, 
When we look at the law of Moses and think that that's going to, if we obey that, that's going to justify us before God and make us acceptable, that's where we've gone astray. I read the other day, I don't know what it was, it, it, just some kind of a post or something about how this Christian Baptist church obsesses over what women wear in the worship room. And when they wear jeans, whoa, you better watch out. Well, she's wearing jeans? Get the skirt team out here. I mean, literally. You know, what you wear, we want to dress modestly, but what you wear has zero impact on you spiritually, just as circumcision has zero impact on you spiritually. And people obsess over these things. But the fact of the matter is Christianity is not about works of the law. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about grace. It's about faith. It's about Christ. It's about the cross. It's about what God has done for sinners. The impossible for us to do for ourselves. Atone for our sins and save ourselves. We can't do that. That's what Christianity is about. Christianity is about becoming a new creation. Not an old creation that just obeys a lot of rules and laws. It's about becoming a new creation. Paul talks about this in the next verse. He talks about it with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're a new creation. Christianity is about being a new creation, and that person who's a new creation is possessed and guided by the Holy Spirit, not the laws of God, not the Mosaic law. Ezekiel 37.14, John 16, 13, the Spirit will guide you into all truth, Jesus tells His disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. We've got our do's and don'ts. The New Testament is replete with imperatives. What's an imperative? That's an exhortation to do this or that. It's a command. But guess what? The imperatives always follow the indicatives. What's an indicative? a description of what Christ has done on our behalf. Did you know this, that every epistle in the New Testament is written in this fashion? Every one of them starts with half of the epistle describing what has been accomplished by Christ. The rest of it, what follows that in the remaining chapters, is what we are to do in light of it. But even this, the, 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 the imperatives and what we should and shouldn't be doing, even that is not our Focus as Christians, our focus is the cross and Christ. If you're a Christian who spends your days trying to figure out what you should and shouldn't do, you're, you're, you're wasting your time. I'm not telling you not to be cognizant or aware of your behavior. Do that. But the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to work that out in you if you're a real believer. But the focus is on the finished work of Christ for us. It's not the law. It's on what Christ has accomplished for us. And by glancing and looking at a, at a cross, you, you get the idea. The cross is such a wonderful reminder of what Christ has done. It's not a fashion symbol. It's not cool. That is a mode of execution. And our dear, precious Lord was slaughtered on one of those things to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. 
That's the focus of the Christian. That's the boast of the Christian. Do you understand? The Judaizers, they, they made a good showing in the flesh by boasting about the circumcisions they performed, about the converts that they had gained to their weird cult. Paul says there is only one thing that all Christians should boast about. What is it? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. The buck starts and stops at Calvary, at the cross. And when we boast about our accomplishments and religion or whatever it is that we're boasting about, what are we doing? We are pointing to what we have done. We are glorying in ourselves. But when we boast about the cross, we are pointing to what God has done, aren't we? We are glorying in Him. You see the difference? The cross is, you might want to write this one down, the cross is the supreme symbol of divine accomplishment. It is. It is the highest, most visible symbol of God's accomplishment on behalf of sinners. The highest, the highest expression. And this, my dear friends and family, this is the essence of Christianity. It's about what God has done for sinners in and through His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's the essence of our system of faith. Now in verses 14b to 16, Paul tells the Galatians and us why it's okay for Christians to boast about the cross or to boast in the cross. Now we've already covered some of that, but here's what he says about it. Now we can look at our points. Our first point, number one, the cross has freed us from our slavery to the world. We see this in verse 14b, and this is the way that Paul says this exact point. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The Greek word for world, some of you are familiar with it, is cosmos. We get our word cosmos from it. And what does it refer to so often in the New Testament? This Greek word, it refers to the evil world system and to its ruler, the devil. John 12, 31 describes that. MacArthur says this, Cosmos refers to Satan's spiritual system under which humanity is now in bondage because of sin. In a more specific aspect, it refers to Satan's vast system of false religions, all of which are grounded in human merit and works righteousness. Whether a person is religious, atheistic, or agnostic, if he does not know Christ, he is captive to the satanic system called the world. End quote. So what is he talking about here when he talks about the world? He's talking about the system of the world, its way of thinking, its religions, its philosophical positions and all of that, everything and anything and everything that's really evil about the world and how deceptive it is and all that. It's, it's all of that and a bag of chips. Now, what does Scripture say about the ruler of this world? We're not talking about God because he is, Christ is the ruler in the, in the meta sense of over it, but there is a... a 
kind of ruler over it now. What does he say about the devil, right? The world lies in the power of the evil one. Speaking of the devil there, 1 John 5, 19. Right now, this world lies in the power of Satan. Doesn't mean that God isn't in control or sovereign over all of it. But it is under the sway and power of the evil one. The Bible says he is the prince of the power of the air. You get the idea that he's demonic and can't be seen. But he's everywhere. He moves around and does things. And he moves through the air and, and accomplishes his perverted, destructive, satanic will. Ephesians 2, 2b says of the devil, he is the God of this world, lower G, God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. This is what the lowercase g, God of this world and ruler of this world does. He blinds unbelievers, he moves through the air, does all these things. This is in a sense his domain and where he does most of his business the idea that the devil just sits down there in hell waiting for unsuspecting people to show up is ridiculous. He is not in hell. He is not there. It's a place of punishment for him later. He's not down there with a pitchfork tormenting people. Hell is terrifying, not because the devil's there, but because God in all his wrath is there. The devil is here in our midst. Now, he can only be in one place at a time. He's not omnipresent. But he's here, and he rules over this world in a lot of ways, especially through political means. He does. And I think he has demons, like higher-level demons under him, but higher-level demons strategically placed throughout the world doing his bidding. And then he has a, an entire army of demons that are doing his bidding. The world is under his power and sway. He is, in a sense, ruling under the sovereignty of of God. And yet, Jesus did what? He overcame the world system. He destroyed its spiritual power structure. He slayed its smaug, its dragon, its devil, the devil, right? And he did this decisively at the cross. Genesis 3.15, he smashed or bruised the serpent's head. Right with his own heel. Talks about this in John 16, 25. It talks about this in Colossians 2, 14 to 15, where he disarmed the spiritual powers and principalities. He does all of this and did all of this at the cross. At the cross, Jesus won a decisive victory over the devil. Whenever you see that ridiculous Christian artwork of Jesus arm wrestling Satan, that's stupid. There's no wrestling match going on. The devil is under his feet, and yet he allows, according to his sovereign plan, he allows him to work his havoc and do the things that he's doing, and all of it will somehow redound for the glory of God at some point. There's no evenly matched scenario here. At the cross, Satan was defeated, and his time is short, we would say. What Paul is essentially saying here is that I have been liberated from the world system. It's been crucified to me and I to it because of what I boast in, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the statement that he makes here to the Galatians is true of every Christian. 
All who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are brought out from under the world system and its ruler. As MacArthur said, if you're not in Christ, you're still under its power and sway. But if you're in Christ by grace through faith, you're out from under its power and sway. The world has no hold on you. Christians have literally been delivered in a spiritual sense, have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son, Colossians 1.13. That's a reality. They have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness, that's really the world in a sense, and brought into the kingdom of light, that is the kingdom of heaven, that is the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Ephesians 5.8, 1 Peter 2.9 speaks to this. What I'm telling you is, is that we owe all of this deliverance and being brought out from under the world and its ruler, we owe it all to the cross, to what Christ did there. And this is why it's okay for Christians to boast about the cross. When we boast in the cross, we are boasting about Christ's victory over the world and over Satan over the ancient dragon, over the devil, over the serpent. When we boast in the cross, we are boasting about our liberator, Christ, and we are boasting about our liberation from the world with its demonic ruler. That's what we're boasting about when we boast about the cross. What Jesus did there brought me out from under the world. I'm in the world, but I'm no longer of the world. I'm not of its substance. I've been brought out. I'm a citizen of a whole different kingdom. Completely different place. That's not of this world, as Jesus told Pilate. And yet those who reject Christ are still enslaved to the world under the sway and power of the God of this land, lower G, the devil. They are held captive by the worthless elementary principles of the world. Paul talked about this in Galatians 4.9. They are even living as satanic sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, verse 2c. This is literally where Paul tells the Ephesians that Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's all the unbelievers. So that's the first point. The cross has freed us from our slavery to the world and to the devil. This is what Paul says. Number two, the cross has freed us from our slavery to the law. Speaking of the Mosaic law, not the speed limit. Although I feel like I've been liberated from that. But when I get a ticket, it shows me that I haven't. He says this in verse 15. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, during his life and death on the cross, Jesus did something we could never do, not even in a trillion lifetimes. He obeyed every tenant, every ordinance, every bit of God's law. He did this during his life, and he even did it at the cross. Every commandment was fulfilled by Christ and in Christ. And I would say with absolute precision, perfect precision. You think about that, the Scripture talks about Christ being without sin, right? Well, how, how can you be without sin? Never break one of God's laws. 
So if he's without sin, we are being told, and we are being told in Scripture that he's without sin, but that tells us that he obeyed God's, law, God's laws perfectly with absolute precision. And in doing this, he not only displayed his own perfect, perfect righteousness, but he also earned righteousness for the unrighteous, for lawbreakers, for transgressors, for those who have broken God's laws. His perfect record merited the righteousness sinners need for entry into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5, verse 20, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, who were the most religious people in the world, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't boasting about the righteousness of the Pharisees. He was just simply saying that if there were, the most righteous people in the world would, in a sense, be the Pharisees because they try to obey everything. But even their righteousness, if they had such a thing, is not enough to get you into my kingdom. You have to have a righteousness that is superior to that of them. And when a sinner trusts in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior, they receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. Every ounce of the righteousness that he earned on our behalf as he lived his life in perfect obedience and unison with the will and law of God. This righteousness that Christ earned for us, it is imputed to our account when we trust in Christ. And then God permanently justifies us or declares us right. This is how it works. The Judaizers were saying, well, you know, it's circumcision and other tenets of the Mosaic law that bring righteousness and justification. They were contradicting what the Scripture teaches about righteousness and where it comes from and how we get it. Contrary to their false teaching about righteousness coming through the law and our obedience to it, Paul says, and, and what did they have in mind in particular, circumcision, Paul says right here flat out, circumcision counts for nothing. And so does uncircumcision. They mean nothing. They have no relevance, no bearing on your spiritual life. And when, when he talks about circumcision, he's talking about every act of obedience to God's law. It doesn't matter if you wear the right clothes or don't eat lobster, whatever it is that you're doing in relationship to the law, it doesn't amount to anything. It means nothing. He's saying if a, if a man is, is circumcised, it does nothing for his righteousness and justification. Why? Because only Christ can make us righteous, and we are justified by faith in Him alone. He's saying if a man is uncircumcised, it does nothing for his righteousness and justification. Why? Same reason, because only Christ can make us righteous, and we are justified when we believe in Him or by faith alone. Paul is teaching the Judaizers, if they're listening and reading, most certainly teaching the Gentile believers, he's teaching them that circumcision is a dead tenant. It has zero spiritual value. It has zero spiritual consequence. And like I said, when he says circumcision, he's, he's, he's really talking about all of the Mosaic law, every tenant. There isn't anything in the Mosaic law that if you obey, it's going to make you righteous. Why is that? Because no one is made righteous through the law. This is the, that's the, like the entire point of Galatians and really all of Scripture. He's saying circumcision, whether you get it or don't, it, it does 
nothing for us in terms of our relationship to God or with God. It is a moot point. It is totally irrelevant, and so is every other act of obedience. Now, Paul is not saying, Christians, go ahead and disobey. He wants them to obey the law, but because they've converted and they love God, not because they're trying to be justified. But he is saying that through the path of obedience to Mosaic law, you're not going to earn righteousness. You're not going to be justified. It's a faith thing. It and every circumcision and every other Mosaic tenet was fulfilled in the life and death of Christ. He is the fulfillment of the law. At Calvary, Jesus took the debt that stood against us with its legal demands and nailed it to the cross, Colossians 2.14. He's talking about our transgressions against, the, against God's law. It's, it, he's, Paul is speaking there about that. He's, He's he's talking about all our violations of the law and every time that we've disobeyed God's law. And and he's talking about how there's a penalty for doing that. And what Paul is telling the Colossians here and us this morning is that it all went on Christ at the cross. He bore it all. He bore the law. He fulfilled the law in his life and death. He he subdues and and, and, and eliminates the wrath of God against transgressors who have broken his law. It's, It's all in Christ. It's all been nailed with him to the cross. That's what he's saying. If we are in Christ, we are no longer under the law. We're no longer in the world or of the world or under the world, but we're no longer under the law and we're no longer slaves to the law because, you see, the trick is everyone is under the law until they enter into the one by faith who fulfilled the law. If you're not in Christ, you are under the law. And you are condemned by the law because you have broken it. But if you're in Christ, you're not under it any longer. I like what Paul says at the end of verse 15. He speaks of a new creation. He says, we are a new creation. And really what he's saying is circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're a new creation. Guess what the law cannot do? It can never make you a new creation. It just reaffirms that you're an old, bad, sinful one. That's all it can do. It can never make you new. No level of obedience to the Mosaic law can ever refresh you or make you new. In fact, it'll confound you. It'll frustrate you because you'll find that even on your best days, Tuesday I was good, Wednesday, oh, I was like the devil. Just couldn't obey. Just couldn't find the strength and muster the strength to really do what God wanted me to do that day. That's a a terrible game to play. He's saying, new creation, that's, that's all that matters. And guess what? What he means here, new creations are not under the law. They've been brought out from it. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. They are justified by faith. They are under something, but it ain't the law. They are under grace. Grace. Forever. There's no lapse in that. There's no gap in that. There's no pause in that. But if I have a good day, well, I got a lot of grace. But if I have a bad day, then I'm, I've fallen from grace and I'm not under grace. I'm now under the law. It doesn't work that way. Once you're under grace, you're under it for all eternity. This is what he's saying. What am I saying? We owe it all to the cross of Christ. And this is why it's okay for Christians to boast 
in the cross. When we boast in the cross, we are boasting about Christ's fulfillment of the law on our behalf. We are boasting about his perfect righteousness. We are boasting about our liberator, Christ. We are boasting about our liberation from the law's demands and from the law's curses and from the law's penalties. We are boasting about becoming a new creation through the cross and through the sovereign grace of Christ. And yet those who reject Christ are still enslaved under the law. And those who also add works of the law for justification, they are also still enslaved under the law. The moment you start adding anything to your faith for justification, you put yourself under the law. That's a main point in this letter. Unbelievers and apostates alike, they are cursed and required to do the impossible. What is the impossible? Obey every tenet of God's law. There's only one person in the history of the world that could do that, and it was Jesus, and he did it. But anyone outside of Christ is required to obey it all. And when they realize they have failed and can't, they're still condemned. The law is not meant for us to sit there and, and practically try to figure out how to obey every tenet so we can get justification. It's meant to point us to the only one who actually fulfilled it. The law is very vast and intricate. There's no way we could ever endeavor or attempt to obey it all. And the scripture says when, when you attempt to obey it at one point, you are obligated to obey it all. And when you violate it at one point, you have violated the whole thing. The law is meant to, to bring us to spiritual ruin and to point us to the spiritual victor, the one who fulfilled the law and obeyed the law for us and earned righteousness for us, Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And the Judaizers were like, no, the purpose of the law is to get us justification and righteousness. Wrong. Wrong. You know, it's because people are outside of Christ and they're under the law and they're still part of the world. This, this is why the, the, the whole world, the entire world is under condemnation and needs Jesus. Everyone's a lawbreaker. We're lawbreakers, but Christ absorbed the punishment and wrath for us. We believe in Him. We're, we're safe. But everyone else is not safe. And God is holy. He will judge the world in righteousness. Third point, the cross has brought us salvation. We see this in verse 16. Paul puts it like this, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul seems to be giving a gospel invitation to the Judaizers and to others who do not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It seems to be what he's doing here, which is very befitting for the end of his letter as he wraps up. Doesn't it make sense for him to make a plea? Because Paul may condemn your actions and expose your motives and all that, but he won't leave you there. He will take you to the cross, and that's what he's been doing here. He will even invite you to repent and believe. He does that in his epistles. What he's saying here in this verse 16 is that, hey, you know, you're, you're under the law, you're in the world, but you don't have to remain lost and enslaved to the world and the law. You don't have to stay there. If they will walk by this rule, those are his words, which has to do with repenting of their works righteousness, you know, it has to do with um, 
repenting of trusting in their own righteousness and in their own works, and it has to do with repenting of that and trusting in the cross work of Christ. If they do that, they will become a new creation, and what happens, God's peace and mercy will be upon them. That's what he's saying. In other words, if they repent of their false religion and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, salvation will come to them through the cross. They will be forgiven of their sins. They will be cleansed of their unrighteousness. They will be cleansed of their earning and and trying to trust in what they're doing. They'll be cleansed and forgiven of all that. They will be reconciled to God. And this is all illustrated and laid out in various passages. Hebrews 9.22, 1 John 1.7, Ephesians 1.16, the list goes on. The phrase peace and mercy literally refers to salvation. That's what it means. I mean, he could have just used the Greek word for salvation, but he calls it peace and mercy because what is salvation? It's about the peace. It's about having peace of God. It's about getting the mercy of God. And you know what the law doesn't do? It does not establish peace nor mercy between sinners and God. The law can never do this. Circumcision will never do this. No tenet of the Old Testament, no, no tenet of the Mosaic law will ever do this. It can never accomplish this. In fact, uh, trying to obey those things to be in a right relationship with God actually destroys the relationship. It makes things worse Why is that? If you try to obey the law to have a right relationship with God, you might think that you're gaining ground, but what happens the moment that you violate the law of God? What happens when you break the law of God? Now the relationship is strained. This is why you can never have a right relationship with God by merely trying to obey His law, because you will disobey His law and screw up the whole thing. I would say that you know if you're trying to get peace and mercy and salvation through obedience to the law, if you're trying to get righteousness and justification, it just makes the relationship worse because at some point you're going to go back to violating those laws. You know, it's like being married in a relationship with a spouse and then going outside of the relationship, which sometimes destroys a marriage. Now, if you work on reconciling and getting things together, and then three years later, you go back outside of the relationship, out of the marriage, what happens? You've just destroyed the marriage again. You're probably not going to recover from that one because your wife is never going to trust you again or husband. So you, you, you can't look at the law and say, this is how I'm going to be right, and this is how I'm going to have a right relationship with God because... You might do well on one day and not do well the other, and now you've just committed adultery again against God. No sinner who relies on the law for justification will be justified because no sinner can obey the law perfectly and keep from offending God. This is illustrated in Romans 3.20 and back in chapter 3, verse 11 of Galatians. We can't be made righteous or justified through works of the law because we will continually violate it. If you're going to be righteous and justified through it, you got to do it perfectly. And only one person did that. So when you believe in Him, you've got it. You get it? You know, on the cross, Jesus established peace between sinners and the Holy God by removing every obstacle. There are obstacles in place that keep us from having peace with God. Unbelievers think they're, they might live somewhat of a peaceful life, but they think they're at peace with God. They are at war with God. They just don't know it. 
Jesus on the cross establishes peace between sinners and the holy God by removing the obstacles. We can't have peace with God as transgressors who break His law. So what happens? Jesus removes the obstacles. He removes our transgressions, our sins. What else does He do? He removes the requirements and penalty of the law. Ephesians 1.7, Ephesians 2.15. There is an obstacle in place, and it's your sin. Jesus dealt with your sin. There's an obstacle in your, in, 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 that keeps you from having peace with God, and that's the law of God. Jesus fulfilled the law so you could have peace. Jesus dealt with your sin so you could have peace. You can't have peace with God without perfect righteousness. You can't even enter the kingdom. How are you going to have a relationship with the, with the God of the kingdom if you, you can't even enter the kingdom? You can't do it without righteousness. So what does Jesus do? He removes the obstacle on the cross. He takes our sins and gives us his perfect righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we call it the great exchange. You understand what I'm saying to you? We can't have peace with God while being under the world system. Why? Because the world is at enmity with God and vice versa. They are warring with each other. James 4.4. 4. So Jesus removes the obstacle. What does he do? He takes us out from under the world system and puts us in his kingdom. Through the cross, Jesus has removed every obstacle. He has accomplished everything that is needed and necessary for peace between sinners and the holy God. What does Romans 5, 9, and 10 say? We are made right with God by the blood of Christ, and our friendship with God is restored by His death. Paul not only mentions peace, so how, how do we get peace? It comes through the cross with what Christ did there. But he also mentions mercy. What does the cross represent? Mercy. What does the bloody death of Jesus represent? Mercy. What does the removal of every one of these obstacles that I've laid out for you, and there's more, what does that represent? Mercy. Mercy. Paul is saying the sinner who walks by this rule, who repents of their works, righteousness, and false religion, and, and trusts in the person and cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will become a new creation. And what happens? God's peace and mercy will be upon them. The one who established peace and mercy between God and man, when you trust in him, you get everything that he established. This is what Paul's teaching them. What am I saying? We owe it all to the cross work of Christ. And this is why it's okay for, for Christians like us to boast in the cross. We are boasting about how Christ removed every obstacle, how He accomplished everything we needed for peace and mercy with God for salvation. We are boasting about our liberator, Christ, and liberation from all human effort and from all human works righteousness, from all false religion. We are boasting about being liberated and brought out from all of that. We are boasting about what Christ alone could do for us, save us. And yet those who reject Christ are still at enmity, at war with God. There's tension. It's there. It may not be visible at times, but it's there. There is a judgment that's coming. Why is this? Because all of the obstacles between them 
and God are still in place. The sin and the unrighteousness and they're, they're of the world which is at war with God. It's all still there. There is no peace with God without Christ. There is no other expression of mercy than through the cross work of Christ. There is no mercy offered outside of the cross. They are still under the law and its penalties in the world. They're still unrighteous. They're still in cahoots with the world. They're still servants of the devil, whether they recognize that or not. And we do, that's the end of our points, but we do have a couple more lines to deal with as we wrap up. Two lines, we have verse 17 here. Paul says this next, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. Have you ever felt that way? I've had it, I'm done. Do not further cause me any trouble. Doesn't that sound like a parent to a goofball child? Amen? He's speaking kind of like in a motherly way here. He's not being a jerk. From now on, let no one else cause me trouble. And then he says this, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So don't do this anymore, and here's why. He exhorts the Galatians to cause him no further trouble because he already bore the marks on his own body, the marks of Jesus. What are the marks of Jesus? These are the scars that bruises and, and probably scabs and scars that Paul had received for following Jesus and preaching the gospel. He was harassed. He was beaten up. A little later, he told the Corinthians, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. And he was whipped five times, 39 lashes. I mean, that, that kills people. He was whipped that many times. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. So he was beaten with rods. And then he says, and one time I was stoned. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 25, verse A is where he lays these things out. When he says stoned, he's talking about people hurling rocks at him, trying to kill him. And this stoning actually occurred in Lystra. Where is Lystra? Galatia. Who was he writing to? Galatians. They knew about how he was almost killed with stones. They knew. In fact, some of them were probably there and witnessed it and thought that he was dead because it actually says in... And uh, it says in Acts 14, 19, that people thought he was dead. Like it didn't look like he was breathing. He had a pile of rocks on him. And these weren't dirt clods like we used to throw at each other, throw at each other when we were in elementary school a thousand years ago. These people knew about some of these sufferings and marks. They knew. How could the Galatians cause Paul no further trouble, right? He's already beat up enough for the gospel. And what he's insinuating or implying here is that what you've been doing has been beating me up and I'm already beat up. So stop beating me up. That's what he's saying in love. But what is it that they could do to cause him no further trouble? Well, one, one thing they could do is start upholding the true gospel. Hello? Come back to your roots. Right? The gospel is a matter of justification by faith alone. It's not about what we do. It's about believing in Jesus. That's how we get righteousness. That's how we're justified. Go back to the message that I preached to you almost two years ago. That's what he's saying. If you go back to that, and now I know a lot of you never deviated from it, but if everyone, if the churches just realign themselves with the true gospel, man, that'll, that'll, uh, that'll even soothe some of my scars and wounds. That'll be good. Do that. Because I tell you what, there was nothing more heart-wrenching for Paul. The beatings and all that, I'm, I'm sure they hurt. I know they did. He had scars. But the thing that hurt him the most was when a church started to go wayward, when it started to backslide, when it started to allow false teachers to come in and start persuading the members. That 
hurt him the most. In fact, at the end of his list where he talks about all his sufferings, the one thing he mentions is the duress that all these churches caused him. You can help me out and cause me no further trouble by affirming or reaffirming and and holding tight to the gospel and, and please write out a doctrinal statement and put it on the wall in your place saying justification by faith alone. If you do that, I'll feel a lot better. You know what? There's another way that they could cause them no further trouble by emasculating or cutting off the false teaching Judaizers. Kick them out of your churches. Get them out. He talked about, I wish they would emasculate themselves. They're so obsessed with circumcision, right? That means just cut everything off. Just end it. If you think that's going to help you out, just remove it all. Paul says that in the previous chapter. Pretty hardcore. But what he was also telling the Gentiles or the Galatians was, get them out of your churches. You might think, well, that's awfully insensitive and cruel. No, 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 no. That's the way you deal with unrepentant false teachers. You remove them from your church. You don't coddle them. You don't wait for them to repent. When you hear the false teaching, you present the true gospel, and if they say, ah, that's just not the way, then they're gone. Don't let them sit around and dig in like a chigger. Don't do it. They could bring him no further trouble by affirming the gospel and, and, and affirming justification by faith, by, by removing the Judaizers. Another thing that could bring him no trouble here would be for the Judaizers to actually repent and trust in Christ. That, that would probably be, bring Paul the most joy. I think he would love to have seen false teachers come to a saving knowledge of Christ and submit to the true gospel. That's probably what he wanted more than anything else. You know, submit to the cross work of Christ instead of to circumcision. That'd be great. That'll help me out. Last verse, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. That's the end. Paul gives one last reminder as he says farewell. What he's saying here is salvation is not the result of human effort, circumcision, or any works of the law. It is the result of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is to be received not through works of the law, but through faith. The exact same rule applies to justification. In fact, what Paul talks about more than anything in Galatians is justification, but justification is synonymous with salvation. It means the same thing in Galatians. The person who's truly saved is justified by faith alone. The person who is justified by faith alone is truly saved. The message of Galatians is you can't earn it. It's a faith thing in Christ. And he ends with that here. He's talking about, hey, it's about the grace. It's about grace. You're saved because of grace. You're justified because of grace. When we trust in the cross work and person of Jesus Christ, we are justified and saved. We have peace with God. We have perpetual mercy. But if we do not trust in His cross work in person, or if we try to add works of the law to any of it, we are unjustified, unsaved. And this is really the central message of Galatians. It's also the central message of the New Testament. And by the way, it's the central message of the Old Testament. What I'm preaching to you and what Paul has been preaching to us through this book is the central message of all Scripture. It's never been any different. Never in the history of the world has salvation ever come through works of the law or through earning. Never. It's always been by faith in God, in particular, faith in Christ. 
That's the message here. Grace and, and faith, they are central to salvation. And yet, sinners have been tampering with it since the fall of man. Started with Cain, trying to earn his way, trying to do salvation his own way, right? And then killing his brother because his brother did it the right way. Sinners are, have always been determined to add their own works to salvation, right? Their own efforts to salvation. Why? Why? Because they are prideful. We are prideful. We are glory hogs. That's why. We're just so determined to put ourselves in the mix. And I, I, I sincerely hope that that we all grasp the full weight of what Paul is saying in this letter to the Galatians. This is literally a matter of life or death. The righteousness, and I want you to listen carefully, the righteousness of Christ is infinitely valuable because nothing else in creation can make a sinner right and acceptable before our holy God. Do you understand that? The only way to be made right and acceptable before God is through the righteousness of Christ. And that makes the righteousness of Christ infinitely valuable, the most precious thing in all creation. The righteousness of Christ is the only currency God accepts. He does not accept our own righteousness and our own efforts that are coming through us trying to obey His law. He doesn't accept that. That, to Him, is a stench. It's filthy rags. The only currency He accepts is the righteousness of Christ. You need to understand this. I want you to imagine with me how offended God is by those who try to add to the righteousness of Christ through works of the law, who attempt to supplement Christ's righteousness with their own. Can you imagine you bringing your petty, blemished righteousness before the throne of God saying, here's what I offer when, when perfect righteousness is seated next to Him? Can you imagine how offended God must be when we try to present our earnings our earning statement, I, I, I got circumcised, I did this. When he sent Christ, his perfect only begotten son, to come and acquire for us what we could never acquire for ourselves, righteousness, how offensive it is to God for us to even think or entertain the idea of earning our way into his kingdom. You know, if, I, if I'm going to do something for my children, it offends me when they won't let me do it or when they try to play a part in that and try to pay for it themselves. That's offensive to me. But it, with God, it's at a much higher level. I hope we grasp what's been said in six chapters here. This is not a game. We're not playing a game. If you try to add works... You're not playing a simple little game that God's going to overlook or play checkers with you. You are offending Him. In fact, in chapter 1, He calls those who do this accursed. They are under the curse of God. Cursed people aren't saved. This whole letter terrifies me for Roman Catholics. It terrifies me. 
It's changed my outlook on Roman Catholicism because Roman Catholicism is about believing in Jesus and doing as much as you can. It's about obeying everything that the papacy lays out, and that's how you get saved. Paul says that is anathema, cursed. I think that those who try to add works to the law for justification or try to earn their way into heaven or anything like that at all, it just they are literally cursed by God because they have offended Him in the most profound way by pridefully thinking that their own blemished righteousness is of equal value to the perfect righteousness of His only begotten Son. This ain't no game. This is lethal. You know, if somebody tries to bring what they're doing before God, it's like saying, look, my righteousness is as good as His. It's as good as Jesus is. Will you now accept me? That's offensive to God. He crushed His Son. His Son obeyed everything perfectly to get the righteousness, and then He crushed Him. He smashed Him like a grape on the cross to give you righteousness to atone for your sins. Don't you dare ever entertain or think that you can somehow add to that. And don't you make the other mistake of thinking that you can subtract from it. Don't do it. The terms of salvation are very simple and clear in Scripture. We need righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have no righteousness of our own. There's nothing we can do to get righteousness. Christ alone supplies His own righteousness. He imputes it to those who trust in Him. They, at the moment they first believe, at the moment they trust in Christ, they become perfectly righteous as if they had never sinned. God justifies them or declares them right. They are saved. They are justified. They are going to heaven. The terms of salvation cannot be changed no matter how hard sinners try to do it. The invention of new religions and, and these sorts of things that we're always down here doing. God has determined the terms of salvation by eternal decree. He has declared it in His Word which endures forever, Isaiah 40, verse 8, 1 Peter 1, 25. The terms are set. You cannot change them. I'll end with one last quote from MacArthur. He says, men cannot change the terms of salvation, but they can refuse the terms. And when they knowingly refuse God's offer of salvation, their judgment is greater than if they had never heard the gospel at all. My question to you as we close is have... We accepted the terms of salvation according to Scripture. Have we even accepted God's offer? Are we trusting in the cross work and person of Jesus Christ? Are we clothed in His perfect righteousness? Have we been justified by faith alone? The fact of the matter is, if we walk by this rule, what will happen? Peace and mercy will be upon us. Those are Paul's words. Or are we rejecting the terms of salvation and God's offer by flat out denying the cross work and person of Jesus Christ or by trying to supplement the righteousness of Christ and justify ourselves through our own works of the law? If we walk by this rule, we will not have peace with God. We do not have peace with God. Why? Because every obstacle is still in place. 
And if we continue in unbelief or in trying to earn our way, trying to make ourselves clean and righteous and justified, if we do anything like that at all, we, and we stay in that mode unto death, we will eventually die in our sins and we will face judgment. John 8, 24, Hebrews 9, 27. The good news is that God's offer of salvation still stands. Mercy is still available, and it can be found only at the cross, only at the cross. Trust in what Christ did on the cross, and you will be made righteous. You will be justified. You will be saved, and God's peace and mercy will be upon you all your days. You will become a new creation, and guess what? Your only boast will be the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ.